listening to Breakthrough News. 1,100 mine workers are on strike right now in Alabama. The first strike at the company in 40 years. I spoke with workers on the picket lines and author of The Southern Key, Mike Goldfield, on the long and fascinating history of mine workers unions. Every day, workers across the globe are rising up defend their humanity and fight for their dignity on the job. In a time of both record poverty and record profiteering, the billionaire bosses have created the circumstances for workers to lose their fear and demand everything that they deserve. As the class struggle advances, the stories of workers are front and center here. This is On the Picket Line, and I'm your host, Monica Cruz. No contract, no call. Those were the voices of striking miners at the Warrior Met Mines in Tuscaloosa County, Alabama, calling out strike breakers who were bussed in from out of state. The 1,100 striking workers are all members of the United Mine Workers of America, also known as the UMWA, and they've been on strike for about a month after their contract expired back on April 1st, and they're calling for an end to pay cuts and the company's so-called four-strike disciplinary program. I joined the picket lines at the Warrior Met Mines in the city of Brookwood the day after they voted to reject management's contract offer and resume their strike. The union and community members quickly galvanized to support the strikers with unity rallies and a relief fund. And just as quickly, management hired the replacement workers. And the workers laughed as I spoke with them and they described how blackout screens were added to the bus windows and how the strike breakers would lay down in them as they drove past the picket lines to hide their identities. And they probably had good reason to, as these mine workers definitely have a militant and fierce reputation. When I visited the Union Hall in Brookwood, I spoke with Michael Wright, who has worked at the mines for 16 years and described the conditions of their previous contract. Uh, five years ago when we got into this contract that we had, um, uh, we took a, a, a lot of cuts, a lot of pay cuts. We took a lot of uh, things that were taken away from us during, during that time when we accepted this contract, the last contract. So we don't get paid for lunch anymore. We only had three holidays off, which was uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, and Christmas Day. We worked all the rest of them. And when we worked the holidays, we worked the holidays for straight time. It wouldn't be for double time or triple time. It was always straight time. They have us on a strike system as far as attendance. The attendance would be three strikes a year. Once you got the fourth strike, which is an unexcused absence, you were terminated. And the strikes were basically just inhumane. I mean, if anything happened, like you had a blowout or anything, you get a strike for it. You had to go to the doctor, brought a doctor's excuse back, you get a strike for it. And that's the part that was just kind of crazy to me. Whenever we would go to the doctor, the doctor would tell us, do you need an excuse? We would say, we don't, we don't need one. 
He's, well, why don't you need a doctor's excuse? He's like, because our company's not going to take it. That's just unbelievable. You know, just unbelievable, believable work practices that they have instituted. So that's why we're out here. We're out here on strike. And uh, we're basically saying no contract, no code. We are standing adamant about that. We're standing up for that. And we're going to be out here until we get what we deserve. That was Michael Wright, one of the strikers at the Warrior Met Mines. To speak more directly to the conditions in the mines, I spoke with Dedrick Gardner, a 13-year vet of the mines in Tuscaloosa County. This is one of the hottest and most dangerous mines in the world because of the amount of methane that's produced in this mine or that this mine produces and we're putting our lives on the line. When we leave home every day, we don't know if we'll see our families or not again. Our bodies are being better than abused. We're taking in all kind of particles. It's affecting our health. Yeah. We actually need that insurance card so we can get better health care to tend to ourselves so we can continue to be able to provide for our families. And not only for our families, you know, to be able to provide for the communities, different activities that we're involved with. Um, we don't need to be beat down when we're giving it our all. And I think it's just time to, you know, come to, to the table and do what's right. Dedrick, what's your reaction when you hear about the millions that Warrior Mets executives are making while y'all are struggling and putting your lives on the line every day? We're held to a certain accountability that they're not held to. Yes, it's a slap in the face when you hear about those big bonuses that they receive. And when you get your check, it's crumbs. It shouldn't be about that. It should be about if it was my company, a happy employee is a great employee. A happy company is a great company. A fair company is a great company. But... I thank God for the union and the bagging of the people who are supporting us in this time, um, in this fight and this struggle. My prayers is that this situation is rectified and is rectified in a, 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 a speedy way or a speedy manner that we're able to get what we need. And the, another thing about it, I talked to the younger miners that have come in and they want to be able to kick their life off in the right direction to be able to provide for their families too. They want to be able to have some time off. It's not fair. They're new in the system and they're limited to their time off. They're humans too. Push. We've given out. We've also even reached some peaks in production during a pandemic. And it's time for our contract to have its highest peak with love, it's time for our contract to have its highest peaks with benefits. It's time for our contract to have its highest peaks with insurance. It's time for our contract to have its highest peaks with the amount of money that's put into our future as far as our 401k. It's time for it to be stepped up in a major manner to show appreciation. And I think if this situation is handled this situation is dealt with accordingly. It will make happy workplace. 
That was Dedrick Gardner, a warrior met mines worker currently on strike in Brookwood, Alabama. Mine workers in Alabama and across the Appalachian Mountains from West Virginia to Kentucky have a long and militant history of organizing, particularly around the turn of the 20th century as railroads were being built all across the U.S. and industrialization was booming. Coal was a critical commodity as it provided both cheap and fast energy. Coal barons ruled the land, building up company towns near the mines in which the workers toiled. Everything the miners had was owned by the company, and by that I mean everything, from the homes they lived in with their families, to the company store they bought their day-to-day necessities from, to the schools their children attended. Miners who organized for better conditions or who dared to go on strike risked being evicted and losing everything. The mines became a hotbed of union organizing and militant struggle, culminating in the infamous Mine Wars of West Virginia and the Matwan Massacre, in which unionized miners took up arms against private detectives hired by the coal companies to break up unions and target union organizers, many of which were Socialist and Communist Party members. To guide us through some of this fascinating history and discuss how it relates to the struggles of minors today, I'm happy to be joined by Mike Goldfield, activist and author of The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 40s. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Can you give our listeners an overview of the foundations of unionism in the minds of Alabama and the Appalachian states? So in the 1930s and 1940s, Coal was the main fuel for the country as a whole. There were over 600,000 mine uh, workers, coal miners across the country. Um, they had a lot of leverage for a variety of reasons. One is that uh, they were critical to the economy. The other is coal mines, um, unlike many manufacturing facilities, textile is an extreme example, can't be moved. So the coal is where it is in the ground, and if coal miners go on strike, the coal mine owners don't have an opportunity to don't don't have an opportunity to move and go elsewhere. So coal was very competitive. Coal mine owners were very brutal in terms of trying to keep wages low and get as much work as they could out of coal miners. So what I describe in my book is both not only the repression, but how coal miners rose up um, almost as one over the country as a whole and organized within a six-week period in early to mid-1933. Alabama coal miners were particularly militant. They were half black and half white. Uh, They often not only were coal miners in the country as a whole militant and ready to strike for their rights, but the ones in Alabama were often the first ones to go out. So, for example, uh, coal miners struck in 1943 during World War II. Um, President Roosevelt, after the third or fourth strike, said that if anybody else went out, um, he would draft them into the Army. The next day, all the coal miners in Alabama struck and within a few days, all 600,000 coal miners in the country were out on strike. So there's a very wow. militant tradition. 
Um, coal miners are difficult to replace when they go out on strike. Um, per perhaps in a warehouse or in a textile mill, you can find people to replace them, but nobody in their right mind goes deep into a mine um, without having pe people with them who know what they're doing. There are cave-ins, explosions, um, whatnot. So this okay. condition among coal miners is um, is very strong, and even in those coal mining states where there's not much coal anymore, these traditions seem to live on. Uh, you can see that certainly in West Virginia when the West Virginia school teachers struck. Many of them had signs uh, that noted the heritage of coal mine unionism in the state, even though this was long gone and it was probably their grandparents' generation that participated in this. You mentioned something that I found really interesting, and that's how mine workers unions were able to unite black and white workers in these states like Alabama in the time of Jim Crow and an overall climate of violent racism and anti-communism. Can you talk about that history and how it has informed how unions like the UMWA function today? The UMW United Mine Workers is overwhelmingly white today. In, in particular, the, the two largest places where there were black coal miners were West Virginia, uh, where they disappeared, and in Alabama, where there's still a substantial number of black coal miners, although the state as a whole only has between three and 4,000 coal miners. Um, but it was absolutely necessary in order to organize in Alabama that these black and white workers um, organize together. And miners have a tradition of solidarity, not just in the United States or in Alabama, but worldwide. They tend to be very militant. They're dependent upon each other. Um, when there are accidents, the people who die, uh, it's irrespective of their race and what um, and whatnot. Cavens affect who, whoever's down there. So the mine workers were very militant in terms of the type of solidarity that they had. So. Nationally, and this was particularly important in Alabama because we're talking about a deep south state with a long heritage of slavery and existing white supremacy at the time. Um, they said, if you're in the Ku Klux Klan, you can't be in the union. Uh, in Alabama, the union sent black and white workers together to register to vote, particularly in the Birmingham area and in Bessemer. Uh, and, and at times even paid poll taxes to try to register black and white mine workers to vote. vote. Wow. And this may not sound like much, but in these times of violence and heavy-duty Jim Crow in the Deep South, these were important things. Um, I mean, these were brave and audacious things. And the other thing that the mine workers did is that they played the leading role in terms of organizing everybody else in the state. So they helped the 20,000 steel workers in the state get organized. Textile workers have historically been very difficult to organize, and this is true around the world. Uh, textile plants can move easily. People can be replaced 
easily because it's a low-skill, low-capital industry. Alabama, which had um, a little less than 100,000 textile workers, was all organized and supported by the mine workers and other unions in the state. Um, the mine, so the mine workers traveled around and helped other people organize, and they also provided a backstop in which the government was often afraid to repress workers in other industries because they um, were worried that the strong labor movement would uh, turn on the, the, the politicians. So that created an interesting situation, and Alabama had more coal, coal miners than any other southern state, and they really played a vanguard role during this period. And so, so the steel workers were interracial, half black, half white, iron ore miners, of which there was a huge iron ore mine and a communist-led local in Bessemer, um, were majority black, longshoremen, uh, particularly in Mobile, which is still the largest port, were probably 95% African-American. Textile workers were... 90, 95% white. Um, but so all these workers were stimulated by the, um, and supported by the mine workers. And the labor movement as a whole had this interracial solidaristic component. Can you talk about the political power of coal barons back in these days and what that influence looks like today in state and national politics? Coal has declined a great deal, both in terms of employment, but also in terms of usage. Employment declined greatly after World War II as the industry mechanized, and it went down from six, 700,000 coal miners during World War II to, by the early 1950s, maybe 150,000. And there are probably less than 50,000 coal miners in the country as a whole today. Um, coal was used, the dominant fuel, for electricity until recently. But now natural ga gas and even um, some of the more green types of energy, wind power, solar, are becoming cheaper than coal. So coal... Um, is still influenced politically because of the heritage in some of the former coal states. So their power has diminished, but in certain areas they have leverage. So in West Virginia, for example, some of the wealthiest coal companies, particularly Massey, um, still had a lot of political influence. But there was a time when they, when several states, they really dominated, particularly West Virginia, um, they dominated the politics of the state. Interestingly, even though coal has this aura about it in West Virginia, West Virginia, which has more coal miners than any other state, still has about 10,000. There's about 130, 140,000 people who work in the healthcare industry. A third of the population with the decline of coal has left the state. Uh, the... West Virginia used to be 25% African-American. The coal miners were 25% African-American. It's now a state that's 98, 99% white. Um, and it's one of the oldest 
age-wise, has one of the oldest populations in the country, and they're also one of the sickliest populations. So it's ironic since they also have the largest percentage or one of the largest percentage of the population who are on um, subsidized government health care programs, many of them being old um, coal miners, and ironically, they're also the state that by the largest majorities supported Donald Trump in his two presidential elections, whereas the coal miners used to be fairly liberal, even at one point unwilling to follow anybody but leaders who consider themselves socialists. Mike Goldfield, author of The Southern Key, thanks for joining me on The Picket Line. And that's it for this episode of On The Picket Line. Make sure to follow at BT Newsroom for the latest on Twitter and on Instagram and search Breakthrough News anywhere else. Check out our Patreon for exclusive content.